I found out you could buy a hardball with Chris Matthews shirt from the MSNBC website How today. How many do you have? <laughs> I ordered one in every color. No, I might get a Chris Hayes one. Though. Oh, no. <laughs> Don't do it. <laughs> He's like a baby. He's one of the... Le- what? <laughs> I'm not thinking of the same person. Chris Hayes? He I looks like if an owl person. was a person. That might be the person I'm thinking of. I don't think he's a babe if that's who I'm thinking of. Not a babe, a baby. Oh, yes. Hi, welcome to the Dan Brown Code. I'm Lena. And I am Forrest. Forrest, how you doing? I'm doing well today. How about you? I'm pretty good. Uh, we're both finally over our illnesses. So sort of. We are, sort of, but our voices are back so we can record. Um, really quick before we get started, I want to make an announcement. Uh, as you may know by now, if you listen to the last episode and if you follow us on social media, which you should be doing, we have shirts for sale. They say Duncan on Dan because in episode three, I said Duncan on Dan because we were. It, it's a great shirt. Forrest wearing it right now. It looks like the Dunkin' Donuts uh, logo, and it says Dunkin' on Dan. Fabulously designed by Lena herself. At 2 a.m. one night. I'm very, very proud. Uh, there is no copyright issue. I checked before I made it. So. It's like parody law, right? Yeah, I'm parody law. Um, and so, yeah, anyway, so they are on sale uh, at teespring.com slash Dunkin' on Dan. That's D-U-N-K-I-N on Dan, and they're going to be on sale till March 30th. So if you're listening to this on the day that it comes out, you have three days to get it. And we've reached our goal, so they are going to be printed and sent out. That's not going to be an issue, but you should get one before they run out. Be, uh, I don't know, a trendsetter in your life and community. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and shout out to at Chris's Poopin on Twitter. He bought a shirt and might buy one for his girlfriend. So You can only hope. We can only hope. Um, so yeah, uh, let's get started then. Uh, do we mention this is the Dan Brown Code, where we discuss and dissect the life and works of renowned author Dan Brown? Mostly the works, partly the life. Yep. Um, this episode, we have read chapters 81 through 100. What happens? So, Dan Brown is in the library. Uh, Robert Langdon. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> Robert Langdon's in the library. He is um, looking for... The next section, he finds it in a, in a process that is infuriating. We find out the Pope was murdered. Robert has to like ex- escape the archive in a very exciting way. I thought that scene was great. And then we're off to another, the water place. No, the fireplace. Fire sorry, the fire area. And it's gross and scary. And Vittoria gets captured. Um, is there something happening meanwhile? Like back at the lab or something? There might be, but I don't remember. Let's just get into it and see what's going on. Yeah. Oh, and then we go to the... And then we find out about the water place and we're on our way by the oh, end. Yes. Yeah. But Ro- let's start with chapter 81. Let's do it. I was wondering why at the very end of the first paragraph of chapter 81, just to take this chapter very slowly, mm-hmm. as the screen warmed up, a young female reporter came into view, period. She was a doe-eyed brunette. Period. End of paragraph. I wrote Dan Brown loves women. It's so weird that it's that's so its weird. own sentence. Like, just say if if you have to say the reporter was like a doe-eyed brunette, just say as the screen warmed up, a doe-eyed brunette reporter came into view. Yeah. Don't give me its own sentence. I would it's know weird. that. I would know that it was a female because brunette. And then mm-hmm. also, you could just say a female reporter or like a young female. I don't. You can um, honestly just say a reporter. A reporter, and then later say she when yeah. you say she announced. And also, she's early in uh, providing us with fake news very timely this book <laughs> Ferrero Rocher the 
I don't know, Vatican police captains pissed off because Kelly Horan Jones is saying that she's live when in fact she's in front of a blue screen of stock footage. Fake news. Fake news. Did I have anything to say here? This no. chapter was pretty boring it to me. It was pretty boring. I said, there was a point where I said Ferrero Rocher is a hero. Oh, it's when he decides to disconnect all the phones in the Vatican. <laughs> um, he's a man of action, and I, like I really him. respect that. Later on, they're flipping through channels, and we're getting little bits and pieces. This wh- Where we are right now is in the Pope's office. Robert Langdon's gone to the library, so it's Vittoria and all the various police officers and the camera lingo. Mm-hmm. So they're channel flipping and like freaking out that their secret of all the cardinals dying has seems to have gotten out on the TV. It's not great. Like in a movie, you would like watch the news yeah. and learn about what's going on. So but... one of the little blurbs here is, we'll be speaking with conspiracy theorist Tyler Tingley about the shocking resurgence. Excuse me? And, what? Uh, How did I miss that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and I like the name Tyler Tingley a lot. And at first, like, damn, Dan Brown, that's a funny name you thought up. Where is it? Um, Hold on. Yeah, I'll talk about Olina's trying to find it in her book. Non imposible. Um so I thought it was just a funny name he made up, and so I Googled it. And I was like, what if he's a real conspiracy theorist? But what he actually is is the principal of the school that Dan Brown was teaching at. Although there's like some weird timeline thing where Dan Brown stopped teaching in 96, and this guy took over the principalship in 97. But presumably Dan Brown knew him from fancy New England private school circles before that. So that's the story of Tyler Tingley. Did I skip this entire two pages? Well, you wouldn't be missing much if you did. He has his own Wikipedia page where it notes that he's like a a famous educator. I found him. I would have have underlined it, I think, if I had read it. He was the principal of the Philip Exeter Academy, where Dan Brown was educated and then taught, which is like a fancy New England thing. I think Norman Mailer went there and probably like a bunch of politicians. I didn't fully read the Wikipedia page. Dan Brown went to a fancy bougie school and then grew up to write this book. His parents taught there. He went on to teach there after he came back from Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And then he quit to pursue his writing career. Luckily for us all. God, thank the Lord. (laughs) Um, I just wrote Love to Watch TV for a long time through a book. They talk about how he was murdered via heparin. The Pope. The Pope, sorry. The Pope was murdered via heparin, which is uh, capitalized for no reason because it's not a brand name it's not a brand name but it's fine whatever and i looked up thrombophlebitis which Mm -hmm. is a condition in which a blood clot in a vein causes inflammation and pain i was looking to see if these pictures victoria knows what heparin is because as a marine biologist she uses it to keep animals blood from clotting or something and she says there's like these famous gross pictures where some orcas got od'd on heparin and uh there's a telltale physical sign that you can find crucially without doing an autopsy on the corpse where all the blood vessels in the mouth have burst and it dries the mouth all black this book is so gross and so it (laughs) describes these dead orcas with their tongues lolling out and their mouths as black as soot and uh, the idea here is they'll be able to go and prove whether or not the pope was murdered via a heparin overdose by checking in his mouth without doing an autopsy because the book says by vatican law you cannot perform an autopsy on a pope um, as far as I can tell, that's more tradition than law. The Catholic Church is okay with autopsies. Um, uh, really quick, I wasn't sure that blood would clot underwater because oh, they yeah. were orcas, and I looked it up, and blood can clot underwater. Good for blood. Yeah. <laughs> uh, did you see that we finally get a little bit more physical description of Gunther Glick? No. So Gunther Glick is on the TV. He's the one that explains that the Pope was murdered because the Hassassin, who's his informant, mm-hmm. has said that he had a hand in murdering the Pope. Yeah. 
And uh, so they're watching him on TV, and they describe him as an odd-looking man with a red beard, which to me says less Hugh Grant on lithium and more the fearful conclusion that Gunther Glick might look like Ed Sheeran, the enemy. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I mean, I feel like Gunther Glick is far more wiry. He's Ed Sheeran is so um, doughy and poorly tattooed. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Side note, and you can cut this, I was in a car with a couple of friends, and they found out that Ed Sheeran ha- was engaged. And they... A woman. Oh. And, and they were so heartbroken that they didn't get to marry Ed Sheeran. And I was in the back seat. How old are your friends? This age? Twenty. Hmm. Early 20s. <laughs> Ed Sheeran? Really? Of all of the it. eligible bachelors to be hitched, like I don't you're going to mourn Ed Sheeran. Women are drawn to him. It's very strange. I don't get it either. I d- mm. He looks like a Muppet. <laughs> He's an unpleasant person. He writes very boring songs. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I'm saying about Ed Sheeran. All right. We don't like Ed Sheeran here. There's what? chapter 81 for you guys. <laughs> <laughs> One more thing yeah. for 81. Um, Victoria, oh, there's some. There's some Speaking uh, to the mic, Squid Brain. I'm sorry. It's point break. <laughs> Is that what they say in Point Break? Uh, at some point, yes. Maybe someday I'll watch it. The Camerlingo takes Vittoria, and he has determination in his step, and I said Vittoria should have a crush on him. Yes, he also at some point speaks as though tapping into a hidden reserve of power. Ooh. So uh, the Camerlingo remains, he's getting his groove back in this chapter. He which remains is nice. sexy. The chapter ends with... Vittoria, the Pope, Olivetti, and Ferreira Rocher all agreeing to go down and check out the Pope's grave and see if he's been murdered. It's not really a grave, right? Uh, his he's not sarcophagus. Interred. Yeah. Yeah. This next chapter is buck wild. <laughs> Sylvie's back. I thought we'd seen the last of Sylvie Baudelok. Yeah. Um, but we have not. She's she, back and, I, and she hates her boss so she much. She hates him so much last time she appeared i just thought she was kind of a sweet french lady but she is not that she is filled with some kind of righteous vitriol toward him and it is she wishes death upon this man i was gonna say on the one hand working class hero um wishing death upon your boss like i sort of approve of yeah but on the other hand like this is a real heel turn from sylvie the second second sentence to her dismay, Kohler had apparently survived his trip to the infirmary. You may recall, in case we haven't mentioned, Sylvie is Kohler's assistant. Uh, yeah, secretary. Yeah, who was afraid to call him on the intercom for fear that he would like yell at her in German or something. And I theorize that she was Catholic, and she certainly is. I was vindicated. She says that she's a Catholic. Yes. Oh, I thought that was openly stated. I just assumed you were right on that from the beginning. Oh. That's so nice. I, I took it as gospel. <laughs> um, she passes the CERN's recreational suite de loisirs, which means uh, leisure suites. I figured that out. Which does not, it's not what it sounds like. Apparently they're just rooms with TVs. I don't know. It sounds like where you'd have a conjugal visit in a prison. <laughs> Do you think it might be like idiomatic French for break room? I don't I, know why Dan Brown would know that. It seems like he probably wouldn't. But... I, my guess is he thinks that it does mean that. Okay. Um, and if you were to like type it in, it would be gibberish. I should have looked that up, but I wasn't thinking about it. Um, I wanted to mention, we get like, it, Sylvie doesn't just wish that he died during the trip to the infirmary. She also had hoped that one day he would shoot himself during his weekly visit to CERN's recreational pistol range. Another thing that I should have looked up to see if CERN has one of those. Would they tell you on the website? Probably, right? It seems like it. I, it. I mean, like, my understanding is that in Europe, you have to like, 
put up 18 billboards if you own a gun within like 100 meters. Well, I know in Switzerland specifically, all the ammo is at the gun range. You cannot that shoot outside of it. Yeah. So yeah. So she's there. Uh, Terror at the Vatican is on all the TVs. She can't watch it with all these science bros because they're all being flippant and wearing their stupid shirts and talking about Illuminati the game. I I have to play this game because this can't be right. Uh, what they're saying about it. Illuminati one shouted. I told you these guys were real. Incredible. I thought it was just a game. They killed the Pope, man. The Pope. Jeez. I wonder how many points you get for that. They ran off laughing. Do atheists say jeez? Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I think so. Okay. I think Jesus, Christ, all those things are well integrated enough into the general vernacular that it's hard to uh, escape saying them even if you are a dedicated atheist. Got it. I mean, maybe not. We'll talk to Ricky Gervais. I would rather not. <laughs> Wouldn't we all? <laughs> Um, on the other side of CERN, Kohler has found the journal he was looking for in Betra's lab last time, and that's all we see of him this week, I think, unless he comes back later. Yeah, uh, that's it. That's the whole thing, right? Uh, there's a second, like, this chapter ends with two short episodes. One is Kohler, and then <clears> the <throat> other one is there's another failed balloting at the conclave. Yeah, no Pope. Oh, and that has a thing where it's like one of the few places where I think a semicolon would be good. <laughs> We have the sentence, he burned them, comma, and the smoke was black. And I think just he burned them, the smoke was black would be good with a semicolon. I agree with you. So that's what I would say about that. So they are in the inside of St. Peter's Basilica. We're in 83. Yeah, we get two whole similes to describe what it's like inside there. Do we? Uh, the void overhead oh. pressed down like a starless night. And Vittoria felt the emptiness spread out around her like a desolate ocean. We are, look... Similes per sentence right now, we are just flying high. Dan Brown is using his literary devices like a real champion. The Camerlingo puts his arm, his hand on Victoria's shoulder and transfers strength to her by osmosis. <laughs> it's incredible. We are back in strong hands land. Um, the Camerlingo's got his groove back, as mentioned prior. Yeah, they heard your demon thing from last week. And, uh, <laughs> they? They, the Camerlingo, Dan Brown, the two of them. Tell me what you think about this use of a word here. Is it girth? It's not. Although I do have that highlight <laughs> as well. Um, I just have girth mentioned. Yes. Which is a weird... That's a weird usage, too. As they circled past a pillar thicker in girth than any redwood she could imagine. You could just say thicker than any redwood she could imagine. Or just say thicker than any redwood. That works, too. Because I could imagine a pretty big redwood. I've driven through one. Yeah, but I mean, like... <laughs> You could imagine one even bigger. Yeah. So is Vittoria just having a failure of imagination? <laughs> Where do you even get that much stone? Okay, tell me what the word is. Sorry. Uh, Vittoria was shocked. As they move away from the glowing recession into the darkness again, she mm. thought of the story she heard of Pilgrims. Isn't it just recess? recess. I think it's recess. Because like a recession is like an action you take. It's not like a physical place That's in my right. mind. No, if it had... I guess sunk because of an earthquake or something. Maybe you could say recession. Yeah. But it's, if it's built that way. As you can tell from our discussion of this chapter, not a lot really happens yeah. in it. They just get to the center of the um, basilica and then have to go underground to get to the tomb. Yeah. Um, sh they mentioned the placebo effect and uh, describe it the wrong way. The Camerlingo is being very religious and it made me, hmm. So that's all. And then also I asked, can they bang? Um, 
because they're both sexy orphans raised by priests who hang yeah. out in non-traditional vehicles. But he himself became a priest, so he can't bang. Oh, yeah, because <laughs> priests never bang. Okay. Well, this he's a particularly religious priest. Mm-hmm. And we find out something important about him in this chapter, which is, so not only was he orphaned, but like Vittoria, he was taken in and raised by a kindly priest who became his father figure. Unlike Vittoria, his father, instead of becoming a scientist at CERN, became the, the Pope and is now dead. It's very sad. It's a bummer. It's really sad. Yeah. Um, we are back in the library again. With Robert Langdon. And uh, he has very stupidly forgotten to tell Olivetti to turn on the recirculating fans. That's what I said. <laughs> My uh, first note is, after all the drama in the last library scene, he failed to ask for air. Stupid. Mm-hmm. It's a smaller room than last time, so less air, less time. He wished he'd asked Olivetti to turn on the recirculating fans. I bet now he's wishing that he had also gotten Olivetti's cell phone number like Vittoria did eight hours ago. <laughs> <laughs> um he, they talk uh da, da, da. dan brown says that the dark lights are glowing hot which <laughs> they they absolutely should not do that in an archive right you think like, not that's the they're supposed to be like low low radiation lights so remember how last time he was impressed by the cataloging system where the books were by topic instead of by yeah, name he probably starts this to hate time that. he's excited about a different cataloging system uh, these ones are cataloged different. They're cataloged by the overall monetary value of each artist's collection. Uh, later, though, he gets really annoyed about the cataloging yeah, system. As he should. It's that's a <laughs> it's stupid. That's a very dumb way to catalog things in my mind. So we find the Bernini catalog. Uh, he remembers that these big Renaissance artists did not make all of their artworks by hand. And I wrote that explains the ugly relief for the mm. wind section. <laughs> yeah, it was a moment of Bernini's idiot students yeah stupid stupid it's so bad um surely he did create like some of them no or i think that the general idea do not quote me on this but i'm gonna put it on our podcast anyways (laughs) i think the way that it works is generally the master artist would like design and have at least a great deal of input and a final okay on everything that came out of their workshop Mm -hmm. but just a great deal of the work was done by apprentices okay I think, like, apprentices getting to the point where they were allowed to do their own designs in the first place was, like, a big deal. And even then, the master would still have to, like, okay Sign it. off on it before his name was on it. Yeah. He can't find the word for fire, which is fuoco, because he's looking for F, and he gets really upset that they don't, it's not alphabetized. In although, the index now. Yeah, in the index. He says, what the hell do these people have against alphabetizing? And this one makes more... This one's a chronological thing they have in their log at Brainy's works and that makes sense yeah that as you're handwriting your catalog of works by an artist you'd go in order yeah over over centuries <laughs> and he brings up last time you were talking about how him looking for a sculpture that has to do with air was not a sound technique and he mentioned this time the previous two works Habakkuk and the Angel and West Ponente had not contained specific references to earth or air. Yeah, I wrote that's what I said about references to elements. But he doesn't stop looking for fire. No, he doesn't. It, he doesn't learn from it. No. He like specifically points out I shouldn't be looking for fire and then still does it. It's very weird. It's very weird. Anyway, he finds out that it is the Ecstasy of Saint Teresa, which is beautiful. It's very good. Um there is a very cool 3D model of it on the internet. 
Um, because it, it, her posture is described as orgasmic, and I wanted to see it in 3D to like kind of get a feel for it, because I haven't seen it in real life. It is very... Uh, there is quite a bit of ecstasy going on, but it's a the 3D model I found is cool, and I'll link it in the show notes after so you can take a look at it. It's Whoever did this is um, very talented. Also, there's like a really beautiful relief of The Last Supper underneath it, and then there's two kind of demon's holes that have skeletons on them on either side. Demon holes have to go to ossuary annexes. Do they go to <laughs> ossuary annexes? I don't know if they go to... I didn't look it up. <laughs> I have something to say about the ecstasy of St. Teresa. Okay, go ahead. So Robert Langdon decides it does have to do with fire because he mentions that... Um, He's holding a spear of fire. Well, he mentions that specifically Bernini has sculpted a seraphim, a kind of angel whose name literally means fiery one, which etymologically seems sound. And also it's very confusing to try to figure out whether seraphim is properly the singular or plural. Um, as far as I could tell, the old Hebrew would have, there's a back formation of seraph for singular, and then in Latin, seraphim's the singular. And then in English, John Milton apparently coined seraph in the singular. But I think that you're safe using seraphim in the singular. The thing is that he quotes St. Teresa's autobiography and says that she mentioned to seraphim, which she does not. Explicitly, she mentions that it must be the kind of angel called a cherubim in her autobiography. Can I stop you for just a moment? You may. Dan Brown does not uh, oh. claim that she does say it's a seraphim. Bernini chose did. a seraphim. Oh, he says Bernini chose a seraphim? Mm-hmm. Okay, well. But it's fine. Please I like continue. my thing because St. Teresa <laughs> says it must be the kind of angel that we call a cherubim. And then in his commentary on her autobiography that he was helping her with, Domingo Bañez, her confessor, was like, actually, it was a... <laughs> seraphim the fiery one not a cherubim because she does mention it has an eight spear tipped with the point of fire the thing is that bernini couldn't have sculpted a seraphim in this particular sculpture because as far as i can tell from any piece of angelology i've seen the defining characteristics of a seraphim are six wings and a ton of eyes and this angel in the sculpture has neither yeah but you know what is good? It's just an angel. Sculpt six well, I, eyes that's what I'm saying. He didn't sculpt a seraphim. He sculpted an angel. So I, I'm pretty sure Dan Brown specifically says that Bernie chose to portray a seraphim. That's true. Um, real quick, I don't think he has a spear. I'm pretty sure it's a boring arrow. Did you look it up? I looked it up, but I don't remember. I thought it was just like a exaggerated sculpture spear where it's heavy and you don't want to give him a full size spear. It looks like an arrow. Okay, it might be. I'll accept it. Um, and then also, Dan Brown chooses the sexiest possible translation of Teresa's autobiography and then excerpts a lot of things about how she's, like, in pain um, in order to make it more pornographic. So he has his great golden spear filled with fire plunged into me several times, penetrated to my entrails, a sweetness so extreme that one could not possibly wish it to stop. Which, like, <laughs> is right, basically, but in the actual full excerpt, I couldn't find it in the original Spanish Mm. Um, I'm sure I could have if I'd looked longer, mm-hmm. but I found a few English translations and most of them are a little more circumspect. Mm-hmm. Uh, Langdon says, if that's not a metaphor for some serious sex, I don't know what is. I can't get over it. I can't get over the three words, some serious sex. It's uh, not ideal. I can't. 
the whole page this is happening. He's an adult. I just wrote, I hate this page because I hate almost everything about it. Anyway, someone cuts the lights and, um, oh, oh, it's in Santa Maria de, de la Vittoria. It's in that chapel, I think. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he says, Vittoria, he thought, grinning, perfect, which is gross, but it's whatever. And then, yeah, the, the lights that's, are, the, yeah, the, the, the power the power goes out. He can't leave because it's an electric door to get out. So he's trapped Oops. in this box and it's dark and there's no air. And then we're back in the Vatican grottos with Vittoria and Ferrero Rocher and Olivetti and the Camerlengo. I'm going to let you do this one because I don't have any notes except for a question for you. So I don't have much. Um, there's a weird line that says the tunnel carried a distinctly incorporeal feel, which I thought was weird. Mm-hmm. That was weird. I highlighted it. Um, also funny to me, an iciness raked her flesh. It's the cold, she told herself, which yes. Generally, the cold is what makes an iciness rake your flesh. But it's only partially true, it says right after. Uh, well... Because she had the sense they were being watched. Okay. <laughs> Whatever, dude. So, I had a question about question? the structure of this place. So, they've got... There's a sarcophagus, and it's in some kind of niche mm-hmm. in the wall. And then it says... And so, they're, they're pushing things to, mm-hmm. to move the lid around. And it says... Uh, the men dug in, and they're pushing this uh, the sarcophagus, and the lid rotated off the top of the tomb and came to rest at an angle. The Pope's carved head now pushed back into the niche, and his feet extended out into the hallway. And that doesn't make sense to me, because I feel like, I mean, the only way that would happen is if you cut it in half, and then... But maybe I'm just not imagining the niche correctly. I had trouble imagining that as well, but I didn't think about it that much longer. <laughs> so I just, you, I you just, just assumed that he probably had the spatial geography right, and I just didn't picture it right. Yeah, okay. Which might not be the right thing to think, but who knows. That's all that really happens. Oh, yeah, it they, says, they, the Pope's mouth is open, and it's as black as death. Which I liked. I liked mm-hmm. that. Because in the next chapter, it opens with no light, no sound. The secret archives were black. As as death, perhaps. Or as a starless night. Or as a whatever ocean. And that's the second good transition he's done. Yeah, two good transitions. Well done. So now Robert Langdon is running out of air very rapidly in this room, which I looked into this time because I was wondering how much air you have in a given airtight room. Mm-hmm. And my research was not super easy because there's a lot of differing information on the internet Mm -hmm. but the lowest estimate i could really find was that in an airtight room that's 10 feet by 10 feet by 10 feet which is going to be smaller than this room that robert langdon's in because the room he's in has like quite a few bookcases yeah you'd have about 12 hours of breathable air before the co2 levels become toxic for you so there's no way he is like in trouble of run in danger of running out of air for real in this room yeah, because he, he certainly hasn't been in this room for 12 hours. He's been in it for less than 10 minutes now, I think. Oh, yeah? I don't... I can't, it can't be much more than that. I haven't fully done the timeline yet. Okay. But he's total... He checks his watch at the end, so yeah, we know no, what time he it does. is. Um, but he, he's not in there very long. Certainly, right. like, nowhere even close to where he'd be in danger for running out of air here. Well, that doesn't make for a very good action scene in a library, now does it? It doesn't, but, like, that's not my fault for writing a bad... <laughs> For, like, not doing my research. Okay, so uh, he didn't bring the walkie-talkie that the officer handed him because he's an idiot. 
it's dark in there. And I said, if only your cell phone had a flashlight. So he's trying to he's trying to bust out of this place. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has no options, really. And he, like, tries to come at it with a ladder, but it's made of aluminum and it d- doesn't work. And then he's, like, panicking and claustrophobic. So he lies down and does, like, some kind of swimmer's trick to slow his breathing and, like, calm down. He thinks about the examination table, but, like, you couldn't really run into the wall with that. And then he proceeds to do, like, the coolest thing. <laughs> it's pretty good. It's so good. He decides to use all of the bookcases to... to crack the glass which is so exciting he goes to the far end like he tries to push one bookcase and it doesn't budge and he goes to the far end and he climbs between the bookcase and the glass wall like the well, i'm doing it with my hands yeah, but like like a, like a chimney climb like, sort like of spider-man <laughs> like and then at the top he like he does like a leg press basically and uses his own self and leverage and pushes all of them over like dominoes. And, and lest then... you forget where he's a professor when he's explaining it to himself. Oh, thank God. It's just like the leg press in the Harvard gym. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he does this, this leg press and they, they topple like dominoes and it's so cool. And then it like clinks against the glass at the end and it doesn't break and he freaks out but then like a split second later all the glass shatters and he's cut open his hand but he's free and he can breathe again it's very cool leave it to dan brown to create like a tense action scene in a library very cool and then we are assured of its success because in the vatican grottoes uh vittoria gets a call on the walkie-talkie from robert and he's like oh my god i'm alive (laughs) uh oh it's not it's 9 41 p.m Mm-hmm. Um, and Langdon goes back to wherever they were, the office or something. Yep. Victoria's like, oh, you're hurt. And for, <laughs> His hand is a little bit bloody. Yeah. <laughs> and Ferrer Rocher is like, I didn't know you were in there, sorry, because no one in the Vatican talks to each other. Um, yeah. And this keeps happening where no one knows where anyone else is. So, correct me if I'm wrong, unless Ferrer Rocher is in on the plot, mm-hmm. is what happens here just that... It really was an accident and nobody was trying to kill Robert Langdon. So I can't remember if Ferrer Rocher is in on the plot. But yeah, it would it would have to be a coincidence. It keeps being like a like a hmm, you know? Well, because it's it's I'm I was thinking about this today at work. because uh, <laughs> I didn't want to think Working about it. Working work. hard. Um at first I kind of thought that the Hassa scene was intentionally kind of wanting them to follow him along the path of illumination. Mm-hmm. But then I've realized that Nothing that Robert Langdon has done this entire book has mattered, really, because the Hassassin has been telling the media, so he told Gunther Glick and Shanita where to be for the first corpse, mm-hmm. and then the second corpse in the middle of the square where there's a bunch of cameras, and then this third one, I'm not sure, I don't, I don't think he tells the reporters to be there, but uh, there's going to be a reason why people would learn about it very rapidly, so... I guess it's not entirely clear to me to what degree Robert and Vittoria are part of the Hassassin's plan and to what degree they are not. I think they're literally not. Okay. I think, I mean, we, we haven't gotten there yet, but when they do meet, his plan is to just kill them. Kill them. Yeah. Like, he, they're just messing up his plan. Um, so, so, yeah. I think all that really happens in this chapter is uh, they are told where to go or robert tells them where to go and then tells them to have the cameraman and gunther glick and chinita meet them outside the church right we get a lot of good camera lingo in this chapter oh my god i i wasn't i was skipping over it. i'm sorry oh god please don't <laughs> um the camera lingo pulled a silk handkerchief from him from his cassock 
and handed it to Langdon so he could clean himself. The man said nothing. His green eyes seemed filled with a new fire. Robert Langdon is so horny for the camera lingo. It's ridiculous. Uh, I just, uh, that's that's all I, I had to say. <laughs> um, one, two, three, not only you and me is my next thought. Um, I think... that's, that's a relatively obscure Britney reference. <laughs> I don't think that was a very popular song. I love that it was, song. It was a bonus single off of, like, she released an album of her collected singles, and, like, that was the one new song on it. That's right. But I don't think it, like, that was a radio hit. <laughs> I love that song. Friends and Dan Brown super fans, I have um, a confession to make. I've committed a grave sin and error and done something contrary to the normally truly scholarly spirit of our show and i've misinformed you about britney spears's hit single three i say hit single because contrary to my assertion that i just made that it was not a terrific radio hit it indeed was it was the first song in three years when it came out in 2009 to debut at the top of the u.s billboard hot 100 um, the 15th song ever to do so, and the first non-American Idol artist to do so for 11 years at the time. It wound up at number 87 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 charts for 2009, and wonderfully, it wound up being number 69 on that same chart for 2010. Uh, thank you for your patience, and let's get back to the show. Um, yeah, Victoria and Langdon deserve it after a long day of fighting crime. There's also... Something else here. Oh, uh, the Camerlingo says he'll do anything to save the church. And I just thought that was also very... Hmm. So, yeah. Just something to keep in mind. Oh, and he, he doesn't call the reporters to the next church. He calls them out in front of the Sistine Chapel because he's got some kind of plan to use publicity to That's his... That's right. I meant the too. church more generally. Like Yeah, the, no. I, I, oh, okay. I, off, earlier, I said that they told the reporters to meet them at the yes. Santa Vittoria or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and they get in an Alfa Romeo, and we're doing an action movie again. There's a lot of Alfa Romeo product placement in this. As soon as we get a Citro- at the end of this section, we get a Citroen. So, uh, in the backseat of the Alfa Romeo, Vittoria's bandaging Langdon's hand with the first aid kit that she found in the glove box, just so that we know she's still a nurturing figure. How did she get it? I was thinking about that. I'm not sure. If she's in the back seat, yeah, she just like, ask one of the Swiss guards in the front seat. You don't find it in the glove box when you're in the back seat. But Alfred Romeo's are pretty little, so maybe she's reached up there. Maybe she has. She's pretty tall, I think. So probably. Um, eighty-eight. There's something about an illegal Masonic lodge. Oh, talking about like Pope John Paul the first. Uh, was murdered with a nail in his brain or something. Well, no. So I did a lot of research on okay. this part. Go, please. So uh, Robert and Vittoria kind of updating each other on what's been going on while they were missing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Vittoria mentions the church, that the Pope was murdered, and it reminds Langdon of... Um, until recently, academics had gotten permission to x-ray the tomb of Pope Celestine V, who had allegedly died at the hands of his overeager successor, Boniface VIII. The researchers had hoped the x-ray might reveal some small hint of foul play, a broken bone perhaps. Incredibly, the x-ray had revealed a 10-inch nail driven into the Pope's skull. That is incredibly not true. Uh, There is a hole in the skull of Pope Celestine V, but uh, many pathologists have come out and said that the hole could not possibly have been made before his death. Mm. That being said, his death was... um, at best, accelerated by Boniface VIII. And it also plays into this whole conclave thing. 
So Celestine V was this Italian guy. He started a hermetic order of monks. He himself lived as a hermit, trying to live as much like John the Baptist did Mm -hmm. as possible. And while he was doing that, there was this four-year-long meeting of cardinals to elect a new pope. It was not yet a conclave. There was no key. There was no locking in. So these things could go on as long as possible. And at some point, most of the bishops had kind of like gone away because they got bored with this election. Mm -hmm. And so there's six of them left. Celestine writes an angry letter saying he's received a vision that if they don't elect a new pope, God's going to be like really pissed. And so like, fuck it, this guy... You're the Pope now. And he's like, oh, shit, I don't want to be the Pope. <laughs> and he was really bad at it. Oh, no. And, like, mostly what he did is... Um, Sorry, what what year was this? This is, like, the late 1300s. Okay. Um, and so, like, mostly what he did was appoint whoever anyone, especially some Frankish king, told him to, to various offices, even if he'd already appointed somebody else to those offices because he was an ineffectual and weak Pope. And he also, um, the only thing he did that stuck around was in order to avoid these lengthy papal elections, he instituted the conclave. And then he was the first pope, apparently, to resign. So he was in the news recently when Benedict resigned, because the last pope to do it was Celestine V. Mm -hmm. And so he resigned, and Boniface VIII became the new pope, but he was worried that various enemies might try to install Celestine as an anti-pope against Celestine's wishes. So he imprisoned him in this tiny, tiny, tiny cell. Wait. <laughs> yeah. And he imprisoned Celestine? Mm-hmm. Celestine doesn't even want to be pope. He doesn't want to be pope. But like sometimes if you don't want to do something, powerful can still like con you into doing it. And then you're just like stuck here as this figurehead that but you don't want, want to be. Who wants Celestine to be pope? I mean, he was ineffectual, and you can make him do anything you Got want, it. apparently. Okay. All right. All and right. that's a pretty good thing to have in a pope if you're a powerful royal. Got it. And so Boniface didn't want that to happen, so he just, like, so stuck in this tiny cell. Him. And, like, that being stuck in a tiny cell when you're, like, an 80-year-old guy is probably very bad for your health. And so he died fairly shortly after that, but he did, was not murdered by a nail through the skull. Okay. But I thought it's a fun story. That is a fun story, and it's kind of sad. It's a bummer. He, he didn't want to be Pope, and he, he didn't, didn't want to be in the cell. He just wanted to go off and be a hermit. That's all he wanted to do. Oh, God. Free Celestine. Yeah. Oh, oh I was wondering if you went and, and fact-checked all these reports. Uh, No, just okay. the Celestine one. That took a lot of my time. <laughs> okay, there's a bunch of like um, news reports from 1998. Neither of us know if they're real or not. Um, they are from the British Broadcasting Corporation, the New York Times, and London Daily Mail. I don't know. Basically talking about the conspiracy theories with regards to Pope John Paul I by an illegal Masonic Lodge, and I was wondering why a Masonic Lodge would be illegal, but whatever. The Hassassin is back. Is he? Yeah. Thank God. Um, Oh, yeah, he's talking with Janice. That's right. Janice calls him. Hassassin answers the phone with speak, which is just so dramatic. Well, and then Janice answers... After speak with, it is I. <laughs> because Janice is also very into drama. <laughs> Instead of just like, hey, sis, it's me, Janice. <laughs> I like, so when you read it, you can see that Janice is J-A-N-U-S. But mm-hmm. when I, we talk about it, I just think of Janice <laughs> as like an office receptionist. And I really like it. Why did I imagine an <laughs> office receptionist? <laughs> Um, yeah, J-A-N-U-S. But if you want to imagine an office receptionist, please do. Um, there's another arousal me- mention. Mm-hmm. It's very gross. 
Um, I hate the word arouse. Arousal? It's not good. It's like worse than moist. No, the killer felt a stirring of arousal as he recalled the fiery temperament of Leonardo Vetra's daughter. And Janice gives him the okay to kill Robert and Vittoria if need be. And the killer smiles and uh, he... He says, although the woman I may keep as a prize. Yeah. Which is so gross. And I have a bit about this later. Okay, there's a frenzy of uh, reporters and stuff at St. Peter's Square. Mm-hmm. Uh, something about these flat, flat screen displays that I don't know anything about and refuse to look up. It, it's, I mean, the, I think the idea of it is all these news corporations that put up big flat screen TVs with like the logo of their news organizations. In and front their of, coverage. In front of like prime spots. So that way the other news companies can't get the good shots without showing like someone else's logo and coverage within their coverage. So that way people have to go to the... Is that real? Do they do that? I don't know. Maybe. Okay. It seems annoying and stupid. Uh, yeah. So that's going on. Lots of onlookers. St. Peter's Square is full of people. People are... Uh, Lieutenant Chartrand and other guards are poking around. Yeah, they're still searching for the antimatter bomb. In the Basilica. Um... And that's taking a while. I mean, part of this comes in later because, like, they're they're around the basilica searching, but they don't go into the underground grotto part because mm-hmm. they're only searching the white zones. Right. And that's gonna um, be ironic later. Right. There's a five dollar word here: neoteric. I have that highlighted and looked it up because I didn't know what it meant. Me neither. It, it means, means modern. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Remember to use your five dollar words. Um, the Camerlingo is a zealot, it turns out, apparently, according mm-hmm. to everyone else. So there's, there's another hymn for you. Yeah, his love of God bordered on obsession. When there's... it came to fighting the enemies of God, the Camerlingo was the one man who would stand up and play hardball with Chris Matthews. <laughs> Chartrand says, a bomb in church, and now it's happening all over again. And my note was, you have no idea. And my question was, do you think Dan Brown literally forgot the plot of Angels and Demons when he wrote Origin? <laughs> it's, it's very possible. <laughs> because I, I think he did. I think he forgot that he'd already wrote that he it. already wrote it. That could be. Like, he just wrote the book, cranked it out, sent it off to publishing. The book was, the movie was made without him. He did not see it and has completely forgotten. It's very strange. Uh, Chartrand mentions that he, like, at some point was just, like, walking around Vatican City and bumped into the Camerlengo and decided to go on a walk and have a theological conversation with him. Yeah. And he's like, I don't understand this whole omnipotent benevolent thing. And then the Camerlengo's basically like, oh, you mean the idea that how could an all-powerful being still allow bad things to happen? And, uh... And yeah. What did the Camerlengo say about it? Like, if you had a kid... What would you oh, do? Yeah. Would you let him skateboard? And a $10 word is used, which is mollycoddle, <laughs> which means coddle. <laughs> yeah. So his argument is that God is like a parent who's letting their kid skateboard, even though it's dangerous because the kid has to learn on its own. But that seems like a very poor answer to me to the idea of why would God make an earthquake? Because that's not like the idea isn't why does God allow man to go to war with man? It's also like, why does God send earthquakes and tsunamis and shit that kill all these people? That's right. So the Camerlengo is... um... Well, my question is like, okay, so... Yeah, okay, Lieutenant Chartrand is not a theologian, right? Yeah. But presumably all the Swiss guards are Catholic? You'd think so. And 
the question of like why does a benevolent god let bad things happen to good people seems like a thing you go over pretty early right yeah it's something that happens pretty early in all semitic religions or all monotheistic religions yes Um, that being said i was catechized into the catholic church uh in my teenage years and i don't remember the official doctrinal answer for that okay all right so fair (laughs) I'm sure there is one. I just don't know it. Um, <laughs> the last thing, they're talking about the Camerlingo walking the way with his frock kicking out behind him as he walked. And he has black crepe-soled shoes. I don't know what a crepe-soled shoe is. Do you? Um, no, but I can find out right now. Okay, let's go for it. It's not going to be interesting, but... <laughs> crepe rubber is rubber directly from the source. It's latex coagulated straight off the rubber tree. It's cool. not processed. So there you go. Anyway, Chartrand thought it was like reflections of the man's essence. Modern, but humble and showing signs of wear. I don't I know if that's hot or not. It's just like he's <laughs> Modern, got he's got an humble. earthy quality to him. I'm not like, like so into humility. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, let's do this one and then and then break. Yep. yep. Um, they're in the Piazza Barberini where their church they're going to is, and uh, it's right by the Hotel Bernini, which is fitting. Uh, they learn a lot of news through uh, the TVs of Romans that are blaring at max volume through their open <laughs> windows. Um, and I thought, like, well, I guess. It's like a summer night. Yeah. Um, but they're blaring in English, so it's whatever. Um, there's a sick Nero ref. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Big fan. The news had spread like Nero's fire. Yeah. Uh, and then near the church, there's the Hotel Bernini, which I looked up. The Hotel Bernini is real, but it's called Cina Bernini Bristol. Hmm. And the sign only says Bernini. At least it does now. Maybe before it was called Hotel Bernini, or it did say Hotel Bernini on the sign, but I could not find any pictures from 1999. That's the same problem I had with the Pantheon hours. Oh, yeah. The Pantheon should have been closed when they tried to go in, uh, but maybe there were different hours in 1998. There's no way to know. Who knows? At least on the internet. I'm sure there is. We could call them. I mean, there must be some kind of like internet archive thing, like Wayback Machine or something. I don't want I to do it. I think there's a way to find it, but I'm not going to do I'm it. I'm not going to do it. Uh, Vittoria has cat eyes. Oh, yeah. What? <laughs> Was that, has that ever been mentioned with regards to Victoria, Vittoria before? I mean, I think it's a metaphor. I don't think she like literally has the Well, no, she doesn't literally have cat eyes, but like, <laughs> are her, have her eyes been feline in the past? No, but like, she is sexy and therefore is, cat-like. But not too sexy, as we learn later. Ooh. Um... <laughs> they see these two people in uh, nun clothes walking around and get freaked out that maybe it's the assassin and a dying cardinal in disguise. Now we get another cat metaphor. Mm-hmm. Fluid as a cat, Vittoria was in and out of his pocket once again. And then I said, he's about to be in and out of her pocket. Hey, yo. Um, How... Imagine, I mean, I get where they're coming from, but imagine you're in the city of Rome by an old church and and you you see these two nuns and you're like, get the gat. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, last time they saw a homeless man, I didn't get the gat. Well, yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. I understand where they're coming from, but also like, it's not great. (laughs) They keep that thing on them, boy. (laughs) Uh... But it turns out they are just two old lady nuns. She walks with casually crossed arms, which I tried to do today. <laughs> Did it work? No, it's walking with crossed arms is. Yeah, that's not great. <laughs> We're just sitting here with <laughs> our arms crossed. But I, I, don't I tried even, like, to walk. Like, especially walking like this, that feels like some kind of weird pharaonic thing. 
Yeah. Like I have my scepter and my swish flail, flail, scepter and flail, <laughs> like a pharaoh. <laughs> I mean, I just, I just tried walking around like this and you get, you get no like upper body momentum, whatever. I used to not swing my arms when I walked. Uh, my mom would frequently like correct me in public, be like, you should swing your arms when you walk. You look very weird when you don't do it. And <laughs> yeah. I was like, no, like it's not natural to swing your arms when you walk. It's just how I walk like this. And then finally I listened to her because I wanted to stop being weird. Uh, my friend Ross uh, used to not swing his arms when he walked. And and um, he went to Catholic school, and, and he, he said that he picked it up from there, so I don't Weird. know. Yeah, I didn't start swinging my arms like, 11th grade. 11th grade? I think so. Thank God I met you after It was, that. like, late in the game. <laughs> uh, um, really quick, uh, she's about to, like, shoot these nuns, and then she doesn't, because um, she realized that they are nuns, and she, she it says, uh, Buona sera. Vittoria blurted, her voice startled with the retreat, which I liked a lot. Okay. You didn't like it? I liked it. I, I didn't notice it. And, oh, startled with retreat. Yeah. Startled okay, yeah. with retreat. Yeah. Good okay. writing. For once. Maybe. Um, <laughs> I'm so not entirely sold on it. <laughs> the nuns uh, explain that uh, the church was closed early. Some guy came in and told everyone to get out and told them that the church was closing early. And they said, who was it? They asked the, she asked the nuns, like, like what's up? Who, who came yeah, in who and told you that? Church. And they said, the man was a straniero crudo. And I looked it up. What does it mean? And the only references to that phrase are with regards to this book, which is my favorite thing. And it literally means an uncooked foreigner. And... Um, oh, but he thought it just meant crude stranger. I think so. <laughs> anyway, I found this amazing blog called the theardentagnostic.blogspot.com and this post from 2008, and I am going to read it to you, and it might take a minute. That's okay. And you can cut as much as you want, but it's worth it. So uh, I want to get this guy on our show. I think he'd be like a, <laughs> like a very valuable addition. Okay. Title of the blog post is called Un Straniero Crudo. This is March 8th, 2008. Okay. Dan Brown has written a book called Angels and Demons. It is mostly set in a city called Rome, in a country he cleverly calls Italy, just like the real country occupying the Apennine Peninsula. It is a very entertaining book, at least as long as you remember that Brown does not have any clue about the real Rome, Italy, or the Italian language or anything at all, apparently. After languages like Esperanto, Volapuk, uh, Loiban, and Klingon... Lojban. Is it Lojban? Yeah. Sorry. Um, the world now has a new artificial constructed language, Dan Brown Italian, DBI. <laughs> DBI vaguely resembles real Italian, but it, it is largely unintelligible by any Italian. A phrase, a phrase like we're fungito does not mean anything in Italian. A straniero crudo means an uncooked foreigner, whatever that is supposed to be. And when a DBI speaker says, it chiusa temprano, to express that something is temporarily closed, an Italian speaker's natural reply would be, do you speak English by any chance? <laughs> in spite of the large number of factual errors, the book remains entertaining. Dan Brown did the right thing to publish it, and all his readers do the right thing in making fun of him for it. Yeah, this guy seems like a spiritual brother. This guy is incredible. Magnus Lewin. Way to go, Magnus. Yeah. Yeah, We'll have to find him. We have to... Uh, I'm going to email this guy. So the Loge band thing, it is... So I have, like, a deep admiration and respect for Esperanto. Me too. Um, And I feel like I tear up reading about it because I think it's really beautiful. But Lojban is, like, the opposite constructed language it's the one for people who want to remove all trace of ambiguity from language and when you read it it like the grammar of it is like 800 pages long 
it's it, it's an offshoot of log lang, which was logical language. Mm-hmm. But there was a schism in the log lang community, and the creator of log lang wanted to copyright it, and didn't want the other people who'd come onto the project with him to work on it without him. And so he sued them, and oh they relexed, which means you make up new words for the same grammar as Lojban. And so there's still two communities. There's still a Logling and Lojban community, but Lojban's far bigger. Uh-huh. And one way to guarantee yourself replies to anything on Twitter is to say anything bad about Lojban because somebody will come and talk to you. We should tweet about it. I have. <laughs> no, we, we should do it on our account. Uh, yes. From, yes. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've got a book called In the Land of Constructed Languages by Erica Okrent. Cool. Or Invented Languages. It's really good. I'll loan it to you. It's Please very, do. It's, it's like a quick, easy read and it's really cool. Really quick, before mm-hmm. I move on from this incredible blog post, isn't it great, first of all? I like it. Um, the second comment on it by Anonymous, which was made on September 9th, 2012. Uh, some people just don't get fiction. In fact, some people just don't get fiction so much that they write blogs saying, I really don't get fiction. It's fiction, space exclamation point. So, whatever. Anonymous isn't interested in our podcast, and that's fine. Yeah, Anonymous, we don't want him listening to this Anonymous podcast anyway. Off. Um, so after Straniero Crudo, they describe him as Bar Arabo, the nuns. Um, that's right. Which Langdon thinks is a barbarian, and then Vittoria decides that it's Italian derogatory wordplay. Which who knows? Did you look up that one? No. Okay. I was so like my brain was so fried after the other thing. Okay, she says it's a slur for Arab though. And uh, so that, and that way they know it's the assassin. She says, it means Arabo, Arab. Langdon <laughs> felt a shiver and turned toward the outline of the church. I, too, shiver when people mention Arabs. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, they do know the assassin is Arab. <laughs> and, like, they know he's going to be at the church, kicking, probably kicking people out. It's so, so like... <laughs> much more fun to take it out of context. <laughs> That's fair. But I'm trying to be a tiny bit fair to Tim Brown here. <laughs> Um, anyways, the church is on fire. Not yet. Yeah, it is. Inside oh, the yeah, building, glowing like evil eyes through the stained glass windows, shown the growing flash of flames. Flames, fuoco. Oh my god. All right. Let's take um, a little Now little it's time for break. a break and uh, a little excerpt from 187 Men to Avoid by Danielle Brown. Do you want me to read it this year? This, I would love for this you episode? to read it this time. Okay. Number seven Men who trade baseball cards. I, I was trying to think about it. And I've I don't never know. met anyone who does that. Baseball cards are fine. It's, it's it's as silly as saying men who play fantasy baseball, which I sort of get. But on the other hand, like it's a fine thing to do. Yeah. Eight. Men who cried when cheers went off the air. That was indefensible. That is indefensible. I don't even like haven't watched much Cheers, but like you're allowed to be sad when a show you like goes off the air. You can cry. I don't yeah. care if at least you're passionate about something. Mm-hmm. You know, when I finished Frasier, I was really. Torn up. I should know. I'm Frasier. Are you? <laughs> Are you still watching it? Uh, not for a while, but it's like I'll come back to it at some point. Yeah, that's what I do too. Yeah. I recently came back to the West Wing after some time. All right, men with electric nose hair trimmers. That one is also indefensible. Like, yeah, maintaining your fucking nose hair is far better than not doing so. Would you rather the person had a nose beard? Or like m- maybe he thinks that men should use like a scissors or whatever. But like that's, dangerous. that's less convenient and more dangerous. Okay. Or she, Danielle Brown. Come on. Oh, don't so, misgender so, her. I don't want to appear behind the curtain. <laughs> I don't know what number. Oh, it's seven, eight, nine, ten. Men who know where Elvis was last sighted. 
I'm not, like, I get where he's coming from this one, too, but on the other hand, like, I might be interested in a person who, like, one facet of their personality was a weird obsession with Elvis ephemera. You're into that movie Bubba Hotep, right? I love Bubba Hotep. Yeah. Yeah, anyone who, like, has a, a theory on, like, Tupac is still alive and I saw him at, mm-hmm. at the club, tell me. I am interested. Um... Men who live with their mothers. Forrest, how do you feel Personal about attack. <laughs> Personal attack. <laughs> I'm currently living uh, at home. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yeah, there's... Uh, one of the things I've been planning on doing is keeping a tally of how many of the men to avoid are personal attacks on me, and that's definitely one of the first ones. <laughs> do you have a nose hair trimmer? Uh, yeah. Is it electric? So, yeah. So it's electric. Two attacks. All right. This one's valid. <laughs> Number 12. Men who get their news from the National Enquirer. Yeah, that's not great. Does anyone do that, though? Who gets their news? I mean, the like, president I, does. I mean, sort of, but like... No, he, he does. His oh, friend yeah, owns it. Oh, yeah, the Ted dad thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but like, I've never actually met anybody who seriously reads the National Enquirer. Maybe just like just people fortunate. who bought it as a joke. Maybe in the 90s people did, though. Maybe. Um, I I do not stand for the this, okay the live with their mothers the last well the live with their mothers live with their mothers seems kind of classist yeah too it does um, the cheers one the the nose hair trimmers one indefensible what what <laughs> remember he made sixty some dollars for each one of these <laughs> take this away <laughs> all right ninety one chapter ninety one uh, the second of the second lock that's been blown off a church with a gun. In this book. Oh, yeah, yeah. We keep doing that. Yes. Uh, the wooden door to Santa Maria della Vittoria is locked, and Vittoria takes three shots from Olivetti's semi-automatic and shatter the bolt. Looks like a beautiful church, except that beneath the main cupola, uh, wooden pews have been stacked up and are now ablaze in some sort of epic funeral pyre. Uh-oh. It's a very, um, he sets the scene really well. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Um, it reminds me of something that happens in, like, episode three of the Hannibal TV show, too, which is cool. <laughs> Have you seen it? Uh, I've seen everything except the last episode, which I've been <laughs> putting off watching, because when I watch too. it, the show's over. Me too! <laughs> <laughs> um, Langdon is ready for action, and he goes and is going to like rush into the inferno we haven't talked about a very important thing that's happening here oh go ahead Sorry. so above this bonfire there's two cables that are used for swinging frankincense which i'm pretty sure is just incense um anyways uh instead of there being incense hanging from these lines suspended from as a human being a naked man each wrist connected to an opposing cable hoisted almost to the point of being torn apart um so he's getting cooked yeah he's literally getting cooked oh he's alive and he raises his head a pair of terrified eyes gaze down in a silent plea for help langdon uh tries to rush into it he can't because it's too hot which Mm -hmm. makes sense it's a big fire the word inferno is here inferno mention langdon tries to save the dude um victoria's frozen because she's having feminine emotions Mm -hmm. and she doesn't know what to do and she finds out that Olivetti is dead on the ground between yeah. some pews, which is <gasps> honestly very upsetting. I wrote, oh no, in all caps. I mean, it makes me really sad. <laughs> he wasn't even shot. His head was torqued backwards 180 degrees in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. It's fucked up. He got like James Bond neck snapped. 
Yeah, I thought Olivetti made it further than this. I'll be honest with you. I thought he stuck around for a while longer. Maybe in the movie. And I'm kind of sad to lose him. Um, Me too. I liked Olivetti. I mean, he was. He gave Robert Langdon a lot of shit, which I enjoyed. Yeah. He just stopped being a suppressive person. Like, yeah, rest in peace to a real hero. Yeah. Has a scene, sneaks up behind her mm-hmm. and cracks her like on the, on the back of the neck and knocks her out. Yeah. Which is very bad. Very bad. He says, now you are mine. And I wrote, a little bit of a threat of sexual violence to raise the stakes. And I want you to know, Forrest, that I hate this. It's I hate in bad. action movies where the the male hero just gets threatened with the regular violence and the female hero gets threatened with regular violence in addition to sexual violence. Yeah, it's, it's unnecessary. Not good. In my opinion, it cheapens everything and it's like I'll be real with you, super triggering. <laughs> like it's un, like it, it, it like it's just like it's the kind of thing that makes me consider shutting a book because it's like like the threat of of regular violence, it just it just feels it just feels gratuitous, you know. Because if you're gonna make the book about the threat of sexual violence, then you need to treat sexual violence as not like a throwaway extra raise the stakes thing. The one thing I will say for it in this particular book, sure, is at least it doesn't come out of nowhere. Yeah, no, I know, and we know that he's a sexually violent dude. But like, he doesn't need to be. No, he absolutely doesn't. And I actually had something. I was listening to this podcast, mm-hmm. our podcast, because I, I'm a soprano yeah. and I love the sound of my of own course. voice. And something about the Hassa scene, and Dan Brown writes him as you know a sexually violent character. Um, but the thing that I find inexcusable is that the Hassa scene's sexual violence is completely explained by his heritage. Yeah, like the only. It's not because he's a psychopath. It's not because he just, like, he has some issue with his mother or something. It's that he comes from a certain place in the world, and that excuses his attitude toward women. It's extremely (laughs) irresponsible. I had not considered that, but that is very gross. Yeah, it's very, very gross. So those are my sexual violence thoughts for now. I don't don't like it. It It's going to keep happening in the next few chapters whatever okay moving on um oh 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 i found what is maybe the worst sentence in the book to me at least (laughs) do you remember the last sentence of this book no (laughs) (laughs) well save it for later i remember it but (laughs) okay what's 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 another contender the second to last paragraph of this this chapter? chapter yes um, it says, oh, the, think... marble cr- the marble cushioned his fall with all the grace of cold steel. Yeah. Wow, 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 <laughs> wow. It's wow. pretty bad. It's so bad. A few things, you know? Like, did we need a, me- a metaphor here? Of course not. Things don't cushion with grace. It's not about grace, so that is like a weird word to use as like the, op- the operator <laughs> to go between marble cushion and cold steel. To say uh, the marble, the, <laughs> the hard surface was not very giving, such as another hard surface, is bad. It's so awful. I, I stared at this one sentence for like a good 45 seconds. Yeah, I, it was pretty bad. <laughs> That's all you got to say? Yeah. The um, I want to go back a little bit. Mm. The Hassas scene makes a very stupid joke. Uh, Robert Langdon's trying to figure out how to put out this fire. It's like, water, lots of it. Put out the fire. At least lower the flames. Oh, I need water, thing. damn it, he yelled out loud. That's next. A voice growled from the back of the church. Um, I'm kind of into it. And he's and he's got Vittoria's gun trained on Robert, so Robert knows that something's happened to Vittoria. Yeah. And uh, he runs away. 
And then at the end of the chapter, so that we have an excuse to get the uh, ambigram in there, we switch to Cardinal Guidera's point of view as he's burning alive. That's right. It's fucked up. As he looked down the length of his naked body, he saw the skin on his legs begin to blister and peel away. Gross, 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 Um, gross, gross. He knew this must be hell because he was looking at the brand on his chest upside down. And yet, as if by the devil's magic, the word made perfect sense. Fire. Uh, this anagram is not good. I don't like it either. It's too swoopy. I mean, the like the so with the air ambigram, I was talking about how the fact I liked that it didn't do the very obvious thing of and have the, the eye. eye be symmetrical. Mm-hmm. And in this one, the I and the R, like the top swoop of the R is just an extra serif at the bottom of the I, and then the dot of the I is just like a little embellishment at the bottom of the R. And it seems like lazy ambigramming to me in a way that he wasn't lazy with air. And and the, the swoop of the E on the F is like just a little tail. Yeah, the whole thing, like I said, like it's too f- floral or something. <laughs> it's it's just too plain. Like the other ones do something unexpected, I think. And yeah. these ones don't do anything unexpected. You dropped the ball, John Langdon. Yeah. Um, I just wrote that idiot popes or uh, cardinals don't know about anagrams. That's all I wrote nope. there. Um, all I said for chapter 92 was good mortati scene. That's it. Mm-hmm. You have anything for that? No, he's just... The door's open. He's excited the preferiti are going to be there because he knows the only reason to open the doors are if the late cardinals come in. Yeah. Um, but, uh-oh, it's not them. It's uh, the camera lango. Something's about to happen. That's the end of the chapter. And then we're back in the church with Langdon. <clears throat> and it's good to read, but I don't know how good it is to talk about. <laughs> oh, sure. Um he is escaping. He like can't. He can't. He officially cannot help mm-hmm. the cardinal. He escapes. He like falls on the ground. Um, he's like trying to escape the gunshots. He fi- finds himself in front of the beautiful angel, like the 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 statue of uh, Saint Teresa's ecstasy. And then um, he's running away. He's running away. It's actually pretty interesting to read. Mm-hmm. So if you do have the book, go ahead and read this chapter. Like it's actually a pretty cool chase scene. Um, he escapes in a tomb. In a... He's like, this part confused me. I had trouble visualizing I, it. I actually know this one, so I okay. can help. Yeah. Um, so there's a sarcophagus, and the sarcophagus has a space underneath it. Yeah. Um, and he's under the space, and he does a plank, basically. The, the Hassa scene is shooting at him under the sarcophagus, but he's like... He's done all these planks at the Harvard gym, so he's like holding himself up as taking selfies. That's right. And so he's he's um he waits for, for the click of like no more bullets, and then this part I didn't quite get the the physics of. Yeah, but... he like sort of knocks it over, and it winds up like crushing one of the Hassassin's arms, the oh, sarcophagus. That, right? Not quite. No, oh, no, no. Yet. So the Hassassin somehow like flips the casket, the sarcophagus, like, like he knocks off the thing. Mm-hmm. And then he flips the, the sarcophagus onto Langdon. Oh, so he's like fully underneath this Yeah, thing. Langdon is underneath the sarcophagus. Oh, yeah, the and sarcophagus. then like a skeleton comes down like... <laughs> yeah, yeah, a skeleton that is that was stuck to the thing, like falls down onto him. But it's still like slightly Angled propped up. up on a support. And then um, the Hassassin like reaches in and starts strangling him and... Langdon uses his like strong Harvard legs and pushes up and on his the swimmer's arms, probably too. Uh, not for this oh, part. Swimmer's legs; those are strong too. Yeah, because right now he's struggling yeah, with, yeah, with yeah. this. Um, and one of his uh, sleeves is pinned under the sarcophagus, so he can't move it. 
he uses his strong swimmer's legs and he pushes up on the sarcophagus and like shifts it over so it crushes the arm of the Hassassin. And the Hassassin is able to pull it out. And my question is, how heavy are these sarcophagi? Because yeah, I was picturing it as like solid marble. It is solid marble. He says so. That would be incredible. Like his arm would be severed. Real messed up. Yeah. But later he's like, oh, he has a bruise. The best I can think is like maybe it was still like not fully just like on the ground there was still something else blocking it so like uh but either the has has scene is like really a trooper or this is a little bit of artistic license um yeah oh uh the has has scene is able to push this super heavy sarcophagus over and who do they cast the has has scene in the movie do you know not the rock not the Uh, rock no he's not even like he's a white guy but not Dwayne the Rock Johnson. No, definitely not Dwayne the Rock That's Johnson. That's very disappointing. Um, the guy they cast, I think, is kind of hot. Is he burly? No, not really. Well, he's got to be. <laughs> he's going to be pushing the sarcophagi over. No. Um, oh, and then he gets trapped under with a gross skeleton that has fallen on him, and he's mm-hmm. got, like, effluvium all on his face, and it's so gross. And then, and then, and then... Langdon, if Langdon had known the truth, the horror to which Victoria would soon awake, he would have wished for her sake that she were dead. And I said, if he rapes her, I'm closing this book. I don't think he does. I don't think he does either. Which but is if he the does, weird I'm part. Of, which is the weird book. part of this foreshadowing. Yeah, is like nothing winds up happening to Victoria. So like wishing she were dead just for waking up there is pretty fucked up. I know because um, like she's spoiler alert gonna be fine. Because because like easily you could say like. If Langton had known the truth, what the Hassassin had planned for Victoria. Yeah. It's weird. I, it's yeah. weird. Okay, 94. Uh, the year of my birth. Fair enough. <laughs> Mine was several <laughs> chapters ago. Uh, Are you 91? 91. Uh, so, We're young, you guys. You should feel old. Mm-hmm. The camera langos burst into the Sistine Chapel along with Gunther Glick and Chinita Makri. Although Dan Brown only uses the descriptor woman for Chinita, not heavyset, not African-American. Good for him. Good for him. <laughs> He's telling the cardinals about what's going on with these branded cardinals and also telling the world. And then he makes a statement about how science and the church shouldn't be these mortal enemies and that uh, they can coexist. But, like, the church is trying to, if not stop science, like, slow it down so it can consider the consequences of its actions and whatnot. And it's a long speech. Yeah. We get some sexy, sexy Camerlingo in the beginning. <laughs> um, he's just, like, strong and powerful. And that's that's all we get. Um, on a substantive note, the Camerlingo speech is very bad. I don't remember anything about it. I'll, so when I read this section... I was A, approaching sleep, and B, drinking. Sure. So, like, as I've got on, there's just, like, fewer notes and highlights, and just, like, more stuff. I was like, this is probably not the interesting to talk about. I don't really want to get into it. I just, I don't feel like chiming in on the science versus religion conversation it's, right it's, now. It's not an interesting discussion. It's not an interesting discussion, and it's one that has been borne out over and over again, and also a theologian wouldn't start in such a rudimentary place, because... Part of the thing about being a scholar of religion is that you've heard all the all the criticisms and you have responses to them. And this is starting in like, like this is starting in like a like a creationist versus Bill Nye place. Yeah, and like he is broadcasting it to the world, so he's trying to dumb himself down. I think, but like 
He does it. It's too much, though. It's too and much. The, and the worst thing about it is not only is it substantively bad, and also uh, uses a lot of very dangerous logic, but I'm, again, I'm not going to get into it. Um, I really feel like Dan Brown thinks that he's spitting gold bars right here. Oh, yes. Like, it's so bad. <laughs> he thinks he's figured out, like, the problem. <laughs> I also have uh, Yikes Abortion Mention. Ooh, I missed that. Um, he just says, like, you're murdering babies for research. Uh. And I, it made me bleh. Yeah. Um, this is so long. And also, I have a, an instance of bad spacing. Would you like to see it? I would love to. There you go. Bad spacing. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. It's like, you know, left and right justified. And just like all <laughs> the words, the wrong lengths, the spaces are just inordinately big. I, I poorly spaced my Oof. note for bad spacing. If you'd like to see that, too. Yeah, it's rough. Oh, Christ. <laughs> I'm proud of my notes. Man, I would do all kinds of fucked up shit to ebooks to make them not do that. <laughs> but then, like, it's bad because if you're on a different size screen, I just, I was a bad ebook uh, editor because I would make them look very good on the iPad I was editing from, but, like, on a, a different screen, <laughs> it would look like absolute garbage. <laughs> uh, we get a, now we get a gross has a scene scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, he oh, arranges his unconscious trophy in the rear of the van and takes a moment Ugh. to admire her sprawled body. He, she was not as beautiful as the woman he bought. Her uh, body was radiant, dewy with perspiration. She had an animal strength that excited him. She smelled of musk. Yeah, my question... I, I actually was wondering about that the other day, uh, about the stank. Um, because she came right off a submarine and mm-hmm. into this world. So it's been, what, 18 hours since her it's last deodorant application? Or dad, and yeah. yeah, I'm like really militant about deodorant. I'm yeah. like a twice a day, like full aluminum type girl, personally. Um, so yeah, I can't imagine how she and Langdon are smelling right now. Um, I mean, Langdon has been in close contact with two crypts now. Ooh, yeah. Yikes. And like one smell that does not like leave your person it's very death. easily is like death and decay. Yeah. Um, so it's all very gross. He's savoring his prize. Oh, he, he's like feeling her up. It's he, bad. He gropes her. It's really gross. It's like my worst fear in the universe. Ugh. Um... He's not going to alert the press about this killing because it's it's on fire. It, yeah, it's on fire. It's announcing itself. So, some grossness. Um, is this where he puts her on the couch, or is she still in the van? She's still She's in the van She's still here. in the van right now. Um, we cut back to Sylvie at CERN. She is ashamed to work for CERN. Oh, and... I'm sorry. One more thing. Yep. One more thing before we move on. He says something about his bruise. Um, yeah, uh, he ignored the throb in his arm, the bruise from the falling sarcophagus, although painful, was insignificant. What kind of sarcophagus <laughs> leaves a bruise? <laughs> yeah, it seems like you'd have, like... No he matter, should have lost no matter, a hand. He, yeah, or this at is, least, like, broken a bone pretty fucking bad. What's the name of that movie where James Franco cuts off his hand? 127 Hours. It, it should be like that. Um, he also says that uh, Langdon should be dead by now, which... Why? But I mean, he's how we've established in this universe that air in an enclosed space runs out very quickly. He left Langdon underneath a heavy marble casket, maybe. Yeah. And a burning building. Oh, okay, but okay. I, I don't know, dude. Um, Sylvie is back. She's here to save me from this awful first part of this chapter. We get three little vignettes here. Yeah, with um, Sylvie, what's happening is all these um people are calling CERN to try to license out antimatter technology because they don't give a fuck that the Vatican's about to blow up. They just want to get antimatter for themselves. Yeah. The Camerlingo wants the BBC to air pictures of the dead cardinals mm-hmm. and the dead pope. And I, 
he wants the BBC to be as gross as this book is, I guess. And Glick stared. Christmas, Christmas, Christmas. <laughs> yeah, that was great. On chapter 96, Langdon once again has no air, no exit. He and can't I wrote, move, he cannot breathe. I'd rather be reading, no exit. Fancy. Uh, <laughs> Langdon clenches his jaw. I wrote, jaw mention, time to drink. Again, I ask, how heavy is this thing? Because he can't push it, but it also didn't even like really harm the Hasa scene. So it's like, it's like oobleck, but for weight or yeah. for mass or something. Like sometimes it's super light. Sometimes it's super heavy. Yeah, but this is seamless and resilient Carrara marble. See, it's all seamless marble. <laughs> and yet the Hasa scene has escaped with his hand. Yeah, it's um, messed up. So yeah, he's fumbling around in the coffin. He does the thing that I thought he should do. So I feel really, really good about that. Um, he forces it up with his legs and he pushes a rib bone with a shoulder under it to like prop it up slightly and it snaps, but it does create like a tiny crack where he can breathe. Does um, he have time to do etymology while he's sitting here? <laughs> oh, hell yeah, he does. It's to keep him calm though. Yeah. Sarcophagus is from the Greek sarch, meaning flesh and phagin, meaning to eat untracked in a box literally designed to eat flesh not designed but that's fine <laughs> um he's running out of air then he doesn't run out of air then we finally get his batman backstory the, how does he get out of the thing he doesn't yet okay he's chilling he's okay. uh uses mickey mouse watch to yeah for whatever reason um the air that has come in though is like toxic because it's full of burning flesh smoke um so things aren't going great for langdon but we do get a flashback into his childhood uh, in which he falls into an old well and treads water for five hours. And then the newspaper calls him the little swimmer that could. And I said, the little swimmer that could is also the title of a children's book about conception. Um, it's not. Oh. <laughs> I made it up. But it could be, right? Like, the reference there is the little engine that could. <laughs> We're back to the Hasa scene. Yeah. Did you want to say anything here? Sorry. I don't think so. I kind no, of dominated It's, it's just one. like the exact same story as in Batman Begins when young Bruce Wayne falls down the Batcave. I think it's the same in other Batman stories, but like the most vivid one in my mind right now is Batman Begins. Is that one, yeah. The Hasa scene uh, takes Vittoria... Back to the Church of Illumination. Yeah. Where he has his fancy chair. He's aroused again, so drinks. Um, she is skinny. We are... Uh, reassured because he's like thank god my load is light today Christ. um what else well he's he... been carrying around like these fat old men all day oh yeah that's true <laughs> um he places her on a plush divan and he uh shibari's her real quick and he's gonna rape her but he decided to do his work first before he does that i just hate that there's a damsel in distress element to this book just super super i totally super forgot this happened me too i don't remember this and I don't, I don't think it happens with the women in the in the next books, right? He kind of leaves this kind of thing behind for the most part. I think that's, mm, I think that's true. I don't remember what happens much in like the ending part of any of the books, so I could be wrong. <laughs> and like I have no memory of what happens anywhere in the Lost Symbol <laughs> at all. Um, really quick, uh, he goes down to Bajia. And is like, have you prayed yet? And Baji has a badass. And he's like, only for your soul. Baji has the best. Do you have any comments here? No, this chapter of, uh, didn't do much for me. Short and sweet, Except right? for, like, irritate me with the Victoria stuff. Yeah. 
and then the firemen rescue Robert, which is the second time he's been pulled out of some kind of dark nightmare by strong, strong, um, strong uniformed men. Yeah, public servants. Yeah. Uh, it says the six Pompieri firemen, and that just mm. says firemen, firemen. Yeah. Whatever. And, uh, it, it, and you don't need it because he does... You could just say... Okay, sorry. This, it says the six Pompieri firemen who responded to the fire. And you could just say the six Pompieri who, who responded to this fire because yeah. then you'd get it out of context. And then later you would say, uh, the Vatican paid the Roman Pompieri. You got it. Okay. And then Pompieri, by the nature of their work, witnessed tragedy almost daily. So, like, yeah, you get Pompieri three out. times. Uh, his shin bones are exposed, and that's gross. Yes. Uh, it's, yeah, the lower half of his body was crimson black, blood oozing through the gaping cracks in his thighs. His shin crimson bones were black? exposed. One fireman vomited, another went outside to breathe. And uh, they find Robert under the sarcophagus, and... Uh... He was saved by his Mickey Mouse watch, so you're vindicated for him. Oh, they heard, the, they heard the alarm? Is that what happened? Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so... They hear the alarm on a Mickey Mouse watch through this heavy marble There's on the floor. There's a hole. There's no... I'm sorry. This... Okay. Picture this scene. I will not. You're in this burned out church. Presumably things are still smoldering, crackling. Uh, probably things are falling. Uh, everyone, these firemen are moving around probably in heavy uniforms. They're not being particularly quiet. And you hear... But even quieter from this tiny crack uh, at the bottom of this marble sarcophagus that seems unlikely to me. That's what I'm going to take issue with in this book in terms of believability. (laughs) Well, the fire's out by the time they find him. Yeah, but like when a fire goes out, it's still like, it takes a long time for it to like be fully, fully out. Um, One time when I was house sitting, I almost burned down a house and... uh, it was not quiet for a long time. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> I'm just saying, Robert Langdon would die here. Um, so yeah, now we're back with the camera lango. No one's heard back from Olivetti, so Ferrero Rocher is fearing the worst. Mm-hmm. And uh, Rightly so. Yeah, what happens here? What happens here is that Kohler is a G. We just get Kohler in the end, and that's the best part. Yeah, the Camelinga praise. We're back with Sylvie, who's trying to keep track, who's trying to like do her job, even though she's so disgusted with it. So like, good for Sylvie. Um, I mean, not good for her. I would not do my job at this point. Mm-hmm. And then Kohler contacts her to get his jet ready so he can go to Vatican City, probably with this journal he found last time. We get some uh, Camelinga stuff. He's like at eleven forty-five. Yeah, he's like you have to. You have to uh, evacuate everyone, and Roche is like, what are you going to do? And he's like, I'll leave when I feel like it. Yeah, he's playing it close to the vest. Um, And then, uh, well, that's it. Uh, he lights a fire for the Camerlingo in his office. I don't know if that's relevant. Oh, so Roche, Roche <laughs> gets a mysterious phone call from someone who has information that can help us. He has no idea how he got the number. It's, it's, uh... And then it's when Kohler, I thought. What? I thought it was Kohler. Well, when the caller stopped talking and hung up, Roche stood stunned. He now knew from whom he was taking orders. I guess Kohler? No? I don't think so. Because, like, why would you take orders from a guy who's like, I found a journal? You wouldn't. <laughs> nice German accent, Thank Forrest. You. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I guess we'll find out. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we will. Uh, honestly... <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm I thought I remembered more of this book than I do, apparently. <laughs> and you've watched the movie recently, so... In, not the end. <laughs> I um, guess this is the end, huh? We're How, getting there. It's really... Time's really flying. Yeah, we're, we're getting down to the wire here. Then we're back with Robert Langdon, um, who's, like, coming out of his stupor. Oh, sorry, really quick. Yep. Kohler's gonna get on a plane in five minutes I to come. That. Oh, you did? I'm yeah. sorry. I'm so sorry. Unbelievable. I'm so sorry. Um... And, like, the medics are explaining how they found Robert as he's trying to come back to consciousness. Topo Salvatore, the paramedic said. Mouse. Savior. <laughs> and then Robert kind of has a brainwave where he realizes that um, he gets a map and maps out where the three sites on the path of illumination have been. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, after a few missteps of thinking it's some kind of triangle, which Robert, any three points will make a triangle. Um, <laughs> he maps out where he figures the last one must be, where there's a famous water-based thing that Bernini made. But he actually can't remember it. Um, well, first of all, he's like, I have to find Vittoria. It's the only yeah. thing that matters. Okay. But then after, he cannot for the life of him remember any kind of water Bernini at all. Like, it's like one page. There's one page where he's like... Uh, yeah, there's this piazza, but I don't know of any water thing. And he was like, oh, yeah, that piazza. There's this very well-known water thing. And it's stupid. The Trevi Fountain. No, it's not the Trevi Isn't Fountain. Isn't it? That's the thing that has Neptune. Oh. Hold on. I'm gonna... Oh, the Fountain of the Four Rivers. Yeah, the Fountain of the Four Rivers. The square. I had a hard time, like, imagining this well, cause, so... triangle that would make a square later. That's, that's what I was wondering. What I was wondering about is he calls it a symmetrical triangle, but, like, the eventual shape it makes is a cross. Yes. And, like, oh, I guess if if, it, the, if he has the top three points of the cross. But he doesn't. The next one's going west. Do we know well, if I the guess, cross is aligned? Uh, the cross could be aligned east-west. Yeah, okay. I guess we'd have to find a map of Rome and draw these churches, which I am not convinced will make a cross in the first place. I'll do it later. Okay. Um... <laughs> I mean, I'm sure someone on the internet has already done it for us. Okay, here we go. So the fourth point, he was surprised to find the fourth point lay dead center. Sorry. He was yeah. supposed to find that the fourth point lay dead center of Rome's famed Piazza Navona. He knew the piazza contained a major church, but he had already traced his finger through there. And to the best of his knowledge, it contained no Bernini works. What the hell, Robert? Next page. Dead center of Piazza Navona. Outside the Church of St. Agnes in Agony, Bernini had forged one of his most celebrated sculptures. Everyone who came to Rome went to see it. He's been <laughs> unconscious for, like, at least ten minutes. That does not do good things to your brain. He doesn't brain. get to be this stupid. Because it's not like he's had some time to recover between this page and the next page. I mean, he's also, He's like, having a brain blast. He, well, like, he, the brain blast is also slow, because he's, like, trying to figure out what this next thing is, and he's like, is it some kind of triangle? That's an Illuminati thing. There's going to be four points. A square? A diamond? Diamonds aren't Illuminati, which, like, I think they are. Well, there's um, the Illuminati d- diamond. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a triangle. That's what that is. No, this... No, when people do this for the Illuminati sh- confirm, well, it's the triangle. Well, when you do triangle. this, it's the Illuminati diamond. <laughs> Um, he made that up. No, it's real. Um, <laughs> and uh, then he's like, then he finally realizes that it's a church because in the quote unquote Milton poem, it it's starts cross. with it's cross, cross Rome, the ancient elements unfold. Yeah. Uh, and he's like, oh, that clever Milton starting out with a preposition, but like shortened mm-hmm. and cross is a play on words for not just a cross, but also literally a cross on Rome. <laughs> 
Um, a couple things. Uh, he gets there by saying the Illuminati believe in opposites, which is funny. <laughs> uh, the church also believes in opposites, so it's whatever. Also, I love, I love that Dan Brown is fully losing his shit over how cl- clever the clue that he invented is. Yes. It's amazing. Dan Brown is dancing through every open door, like... It's, he's so happy. It's a religious symbol formed by the elements of science. Galileo's path of illumination was a tribute to both science and God. Yeah, I said, uh. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me? Galileo? That is, was he like the, the uh, Ventresca? Leonardo Ventresca? Was he was like a science and God guy or no? Was he, was he just I a think, pure science I mean, guy? Because you can't just throw that line away. This whole thing is about how Galileo is... is uh, yeah rubbing it in the face of the church you can't just like yeah galileo was into both and then just keep moving that's yeah um so whatever uh i just i want i want to read this really quick uh it just says it was cunning wordplay um he assumed it was poetic license intended to retain the meter of the poem but it was so much more than that another hidden clue and dan brown is so happy (laughs) he's very proud of himself i feel like maybe his wife wrote this poem and he's trying to like I wouldn't even give him that much credit. <laughs> I think he's just proud of himself. How could he suddenly remember the Bernini in Piazza Navona? I'm so mad about this. Yeah. Everyone who comes to Rome goes to see this thing. Yeah. You guys, I know it sounds like I really hated this, but I actually had like this more fun in this good. section than I did in any previous pre- pre- previous section. Um. Finally. As he's realizing where he has to go, Langdon uh, goes over and robs Olivetti's corpse and takes his gun and walkie-talkie. He knew he would call for help. This was not the place to do it. Oh, I guess he's trying to get the media away, but still. He winds up carjacking a guy to get there. Yeah, he he carjacks a Citroën, which is another European car, so Citroën mention, and... He carjacks a car. So now we're really in an action movie. It's yeah, really Langdon exciting. Yeah, pointed the weapon through the driver's open window. Fury, he yelled. The trembling man got out. Langdon jumped behind the wheel and hit the gas. And that was it. That That's was 81 it. through 100. We've been here for a minute. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, how Dan Brownie was this section for you on a scale of A to F? I'm giving it an A+. Plus. It had awful stuff, it had bad writing, it had unnecessary metaphors, it had incredible action, it had like weird action scenes in libraries, it had symbol-based crime, it was gross, it was very Dan Brown. I think I'm A minus. I was missing, there wasn't quite enough interaction between Robert and Vittoria, I think, for me mm. to give it full Dan Brown credit. I was um, happy to not have it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What about enjoyment level for this section? Oh, I have to give it... A, I'll give it an A. I wouldn't give it an A+, plus, but A definitely. You mark it off for the Hassas scene? Yeah. I think same. Yeah. Um, do you have an angel for this section? Uh, yeah, Sylvie. <laughs> uh, she was my angel the first episode that we did, <laughs> and she's my angel again. And I know she wants to kill her boss, but really just makes me think of Dolly Parton in 9 to 5, uh, which is a great person to be. So, what a way to make a living. What a way to make a living. Um, yeah, I love Dolly Parton. I love Sylvie Baudelok. She's okay. great. Um, how, who was your angel this, this time? I think my angel this time around is um, R.I.P. to a legend, Olivetti. Yeah. He didn't really do much <laughs> except for die, but I liked him a lot. Um, this is more of a 
overall angel, I guess. Like, it's including previous chapters mm -hmm. just because uh, he's going to be gone from now on. There are no, like, rules here. Um, so do you have a demon? I do have a demon, and it's the Hasasin. He ruined the section yeah. for me. It's... I'm usually on board with the demon. He's like, I mean, aside from the sexual violence thing, he's usually, like, very dramatic, you know, like... Super extra for no reason, <laughs> making work calls reluctantly and hang out on thrones. I'm into it. But he just really pushed it for me this time. It's pretty bad. To the point where he distracted from, like, the spectacle of his, like, main work job that he's doing. Yeah, he's losing focus. My demon is, uh... Oh, it's Gunther Glick. He's your demon? He's my demon this time around. What happened? Because, uh, I mean, it's... Technically Dan Brown, but for making me picture Gunther Glick <laughs> as Ed Sheeran, it's unforgivable. Uh, no, that's really fair. That's fair. I yeah. get it. I totally get it. It's messed up. Find us on social media. Yeah, you can follow us on Twitter at Dan Brown Code Pod or on uh, Facebook if you just go to Dan Brown Code. Um, we're available on like every podcast app that exists now. I yeah, think. we're on SoundCloud. We're on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. Love you, we're Stitcher. on Google Play. Thank you, Stitcher. We love you. Um, remember... I've always loved Stitcher. <laughs> there has never been a point where we didn't love Stitcher. <laughs> Correct. Um, Stitcher, don't listen to the last episode. <laughs> um, really? Oh, and, and uh, I'm still waiting on an email from Spotify, but whatever. Okay. Um, what else? What else? Um, buy shirts. Buy shirts. Remember, it's teespring.com slash Duncan on Dan, D-U-N-K-I-N-O-N-D-A-N. Only available till March 30th, and I don't think we're going to release them again after yeah, that. So this is for OGs only. OGs only. It'll help us uh, reserve for service space to put out the podcast on a regular basis yeah. without, like, uh, spending all of our money. <laughs> right. Uh, every shirt that gets sold is another month of SoundCloud. So exactly. please buy them and help us if you want this twice a week. Mm -hmm. um, or, no, sorry, week. once, once week. twice once a month. Week. Twice a month, <laughs> once every other week. Sorry, y'all. Uh, but hey, if you buy enough shirts. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, if you guys just like wind up supporting us financially, we'll have time to do more of these. Yeah. Um, what else? Uh, as you were saying. Oh, yeah, rate and review us. Have we gotten any reviews? I haven't checked. Okay, neither um, have I. Please rate us on however you listen to us, unless it's SoundCloud where you can't rate us. Or best yet, rate us on all of them. Yeah, go and find us on every single one and rate us and send, give us a positive review. Tell your friends, tell them to listen. Put it yeah. on for your mom in the background when she's doing the dishes or, you know, whatever she, your mom does. Expand the Dan Brown Code community. Right now, it's small and fierce, yes. but small. I really did want to say... I love you guys. We have like the best little <laughs> Twitter community. So close knit, so funny, <laughs> so clever. Yes. Oh, you can follow me on Twitter at yeah. Lena Jamili, L I N A J E M I L I. You can follow me at Wishbone Ulysses. I will not spell it. <laughs> and uh, yeah, have a great one, everyone. Have a good one. Bye bye. Bye. <laughs>